live from Sydney. This is Yitzi Tovul, Building Jerusalem. today is Tamara Samuel. Tamara is the CEO of Shalom. Pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. You have lived most of your life in Sydney, with two exceptions. Uh, just after college you went to Jerusalem, in the old city for a year, and then later on New York. What, why, why Jerusalem first? So actually I went to live in Jerusalem after I finished school. Um, and it was a point in my life where I grew up in a religious home and I felt that when I turned 18 it was my time to discover uh, about whether what I believed is what I believed or what my parents believed. Mm-hmm. And so that year was my opportunity to explore my thinking behind my Jewish identity and whether it mattered and how it mattered to me and how I wanted to live my life afterwards. And so there was, there's no place better to do that than in the old city of Jerusalem. Where exactly were you? I, was at, I lived um, at Midrash at Arava. I was actually part of a B'nai Kiva, uh, Year 13 program, although we didn't call it Year 13 at that time. And so it was, it's just next to the, it was in the Jewish quarter, um, just next to the Cardo. Mm-hmm. I think I know the place has a big tree in the courtyard. Uh, it's just, it's actually a po- across the road from the Chabad Centre there. It's, um, at the time it was, it was quite a small um, midrashah. Um, it had English students, American, sorry, Australian and uh, South Africans, no Americans at the time, and a small Israeli program now, and we all lived in the same place as we learnt. It's now expanded significantly and they live, the, the, the housing is further away from where the learning is now. But it was pretty incredible to be literally at the doorstep of the Cardo, um, you know, the ancient marketplace in the old yeah. city of Jerusalem. I'll never forget um, waking up on a Sukkot morning and really witnessing a 3,000-year-old tradition of the foot festival of people rushing in. Um, to the old city of, uh, of Jerusalem to, to go to the Koshel in the morning. And it was, it was like I'd been transformed, uh, trans, transported back 3,000 years. It was quite incredible. It was amazing. And the whole city is, like, made of, of the same marble that it's been Correct. for hundreds yeah, of years. you're stepping on the same stones as, you know, your ancestors 3,000 years ago used to go to, to the temple. It was pretty it's wild. It was pretty wild. And then what, what was, I mean, I, I imagine there was a lot of stuff going on, but... What was what was the outcome of that year for you when you went and did your own exploration away from your parents? Um, I actually became more committed to what I was doing because I actually had some understanding behind it rather than just the the ritual that I was used to. And the ritual was comfortable, mm-hmm. um, but it was still challenging because um, our Jewish religion requires us to adhere to laws, which means there are things you have to say no to. And I wasn't sure I wanted to keep saying no to those things unless I understood why. Mm-hmm. But once I did understand why, or at least some of, you know, the majority of, of the whys, um, I, I decided to accept the whole package. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a terrific year. Um, it was the first year that, as a Sydney sider, I was with so many people that were very similar to me in that they had a modern outlook on the world and, and also 
thought that their Jewish religion was pretty important as well and how, how you could balance that um, was, you know, I hadn't ever found that in a social circle in Sydney beforehand and the people that I became friends with were mainly from Melbourne and South Africa. Yeah, fair. I, I, uh, I too have found a lot more kindred in Melbourne in various ways. Um, is it, what was like when you came back from that, what was like the first, the first step? back into Australia like? It was a culture shock <laughs> for many reasons. After living in Israel for a year, first of all, you get used to Israeli society. I'll never forget, I um, I went to a university presentation. It was actually a prize giving and I was told to be there at 2.30 in preparation for a three o'clock presentation. So, you know, I, I got very used to in Israel, if, you, if you're told to be somewhere at three o'clock and you turn up at three o'clock, you're waiting for an hour and a half. Right. And I spent, you know, a year learning that lesson, hard lesson. So, you know, I turned up at quarter to three for the three o'clock presentation. And of course, the entire other recipients of prizes were just sitting there waiting and I came in very late. So that was a bit of a culture shock in setting, settling back into Australian society. Um, moving from a kind of a religious sphere into a secular sphere was also, um, it was just, you know, it took some adjustment. I, I remember because I was living in um, quite a religious environment while I was there, people um, respect touch a lot more than they respect touch here. And I wasn't even aware of that until I came back. You know, I was used to, before I went away, giving people hugs when I saw them or kisses when I saw them. Or, and that that's a normal thing and you do it often even to strangers. No, you're mm-hmm. not talk, doing it to friends. But um, you spend a year in a seminary and touch is, you know, is is considered much more precious and you only do it, to certain people and people that you have a relationship with and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So coming back and suddenly having all these people in my personal space and giving me kisses all the time, I mean, admittedly on the the cheek, that was, it was just, um, it wasn't what I had been used to for the last year. Was it, was it intense coming back? I found, I found that quite intense. Um, look, I think when you go away for a year like that, you, um, you get surrounded by a particular kind of environment um, and then you come back to normal life mm-hmm. um, and that's a bit of a, a shock. Fair. Did, was, was that, did you go back and study more after that? I studied university after what, that. what did you study at university? I did a Bachelor of Commerce with a major in Marketing and Human Resource Management. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So, so was there, at that point did you have a clear idea of what you wanted to do with that or was that just like... A strong degree to, to um, go for. I I'd always been really fascinated about um, customer and what the customer needs, and so I was interested in marketing because I wanted to understand customer better and how to give them what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I went into that field. I remember my mum really pressing me, "Don't you want to do law? Don't you want to do mm-hmm. law? You're such." So good at arguing with me all the time. <laughs> Are you sure you don't want to do law? So much so that um, I, I got a co-op marketing scholarship and I actually had to come back from Israel for the interview. It was a big thing to get the, get the interview and on the phone um, when my mum told me about it and told me it would mean I'd have to leave my year early, she said, but are you really sure you want to study marketing? Don't you want to study law? <laughs> so like a classic Jewish mother. I'm very happy that I didn't study law. Yeah, well done. <laughs> it seems to have worked out. 
Well, I, I wanted, to, wanted to do something a little bit, um, what I saw as more creative. I know that there are lots of lawyers that find a lot of creativity within the law. Sure. I have a lot of friends who are lawyers, uh, but I wanted to do something a little bit more creative and strategic. Had you, you said that you wanted to understand the customer better. Had you worked um, going through high school? Had you had jobs yes. on the side? Well, um, my father, my parents had their own business, so mm-hmm. I used to work there every every holidays. Oh, okay, cool. So, um, Answering so the reception, doing a whole lot of different jobs. I, so that's really interesting. I was talking to some um, friends in America recently who sort of grew up with a family business that they were sort of not not pressured, but like sort of gently expected to participate in when they had time off. And that really that really sort of um, gave them a very like very strong and very focused mindset. Like they seem to all come out of that. It seems like in some ways like a, a really important element of their education. Look, I grew up sitting around the Shabbat table talking about my parents' business. So that was always part of the fabric of my um, of my family. Uh, I, I always thought it was great that I had an easy access to a job mm. um, in school holidays because it meant I could save some money. Fair. What sort of what sort of work was it? Um, my parents own a business that sells everything to make a fashion garment. So materials, buttons, zippers, cotton, etc. Um, shoulder pads at the time when it was Uh, fashionable. So fashionable. Um, So, you know, often I worked on the switch and directed calls. I, you know, used to serve customers and find the right button they wanted and ask them if they wanted 100 or 200. Um, I remember one summer working with a friend and we did a display, um, a display of all the kind of different fabrics uh, and accessories that we had. A whole lot of whatever my whatever my father needed me to do. Fair. Did you go back and work there after college, or step out somewhere else? No, I stepped out somewhere else. Where, where did you start working after that? Well, because I had a a co-op, I had two placements during my co-op in my third year of studies. One at the Australian Tax Office. None of us ever did quite figure out why the Australian Tax Office was sponsoring a marketing scholarship, a marketing program. And the Commonwealth Bank, which made a lot more sense. Um, The Commonwealth Bank uh, placement was really interesting. At the time, they were trialling supermarket banking. And so um, they had literally set up banks inside supermarkets. And their theory was, well, people go to supermarkets all the time, so we could get the foot traffic as they're going into the supermarket. But selling home loans and apples didn't really go together. Not really well. the same sort of purchase. Um, and also they chose to put they chose to put the pilot um, the pilot stores in really weird locations like Nara where the majority of the population were either on the dole or in the army. So that, that, that really didn't work. <laughs> but it was a very interesting um, time to be there and an interesting project for me to observe. So you were working at, at, these ba- at this supermarket bank? No, I was working for somebody who was running the supermarket banking team. Right. So I wasn't the teller at the bank. Um, but I was, like I said, I was effectively interning with the person who was running the supermarket banking team. Amongst other things, we were also running the ATMs. Fair. And, and from there, you had a, a series of uh, 
management and strategy roles yeah. in the corporate world? Well, the Commonwealth Bank role was really instructive to me because what I spent a lot of my time in the marketing department there was proofing ads and I found that really boring. I was, you know, dot, literally dotting the I's and crossing the T's and making sure that people hadn't spelt things wrong. Um you know, which somebody needed to do, but it was far from customer strategy, which is what I wanted to be doing. And I'm a bit of an impatient person. And I kind of thought, well, if I get a grad role in Commonwealth Bank or Arnott's or any of the other places that have offered me grad marketing roles, I'm probably going to be doing pretty menial stuff for the first year or two. And I suspect I'm going to get a bit impatient. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started talking to other people about interesting roles. And at that time, the world of strategy consulting was relatively new. Uh, But I knew that um, if you work in strategy consulting, you work in a whole lot of different interesting projects with high profile uh, customers doing interesting things. And I just thought that that sounded interesting. So I actually, my first job was with Arthur D. Little which was the world's oldest management consulting firm. Mm, Very illustrious. Kind of, although, you know, three months into the role, I was retrenched because the whole company closed down in Australia. So that was an interesting way to start my my career. Fair. (laughs) What did, was it? Was it like a really hard time for you after that, or did you? Well, it was. It was kind of not the way I expected to start my career, but actually, I'm a big believer that everything happens for a reason, and I put my resume into BCG and McKinsey and AT Carney and all the top management consulting firms, and I got interviews with all of them, and the one that I enjoyed the most was BCG and so even though I was in the middle of the middle of the process with McKinsey, I just decided to go based on gap with the culture that I felt was most appropriate for me. So I ended up in uh, a company that I really enjoyed working that I really enjoyed working for and I worked there for the next six years. So mm. it was all good. But it was um it's actually a really good lesson for me as to how it feels um to be retrenched because it doesn't feel great and it's very destabilising. But uh, I do believe everything happens for a reason. Fair. And so you ended up at BCG. Mm-hmm. What was it um, What was it about the culture there that, that got you originally? I really liked the people. They seemed very smart but very down-to-earth and nice people, mm-hmm. um, very unpretentious. That's really nice. Mm. It's a good company if you can find it. Yeah. And so like that, you were there for six years. So it didn't. It wasn't as, as straightforward as that. So um, I came in as an associate, which is kind of the bottom rung. Um, the consulting firms have um, a pretty fixed career approach. And so I worked with them for two and a half years. Um, and after, you know, at about the 18-month stage, they started talking to me about whether I wanted to do an MBA, which is what the normal um, career progression is at BCG. And... Um, you know, a lot of the people that I worked with were stu- had studied medicine or engineering or, you know, something else that was really non-commerce related. Um, and so to go and do an MBA from a course curriculum perspective would be very interesting for them. There's ob- there was obviously the networking element of doing an MBA, but I felt at that stage in my career I um, didn't want to learn more theory about how to manage companies well. I wanted to see if the theory actually worked. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually said to them, actually, I don't want to do an MBA. Thank you for offering to sponsor it. 
Um, but at this stage in my personal life and my career, I actually want to see if this strategy stuff that we're recommending to all these people at very high prices actually works and what elements, you know, are, are more difficult than others. So instead I asked to go on a secondment to a company and actually be responsible for something in an actual company rather than just doing, you know, short project stints. Yeah, and they thought I was crazy at the time. Um, and at the time they kind of, you know, their career track was MBA, so they're a bit confused about all of this, well, at least their normal career track. But then September 11th happened and suddenly their workload reduced significantly and there was an incentive for them to help me to get a secondment and um, that worked, that all worked very well. I, I'm not sure I understand that. What's the incentive for them? Because suddenly, you know, they had a cadre of 100 consultants and they only had work for 50 of them because, it, you know, there was a global recession at that time. Mm-hmm. There was the dot-com boom and everything else. And so suddenly they didn't have enough work for all these clever consultants and they didn't actually want to fire them, but they wanted to get them off their books for a bit. Right. So when they when they gave you this economy, you that was something for you to do so they didn't yeah. have to give you other work elsewhere. Yeah. Okay, cool. How, how, so you went on the secondment then? Yeah, but it, I mean, yes, and it was it was something I wanted to do for a couple of reasons. I wanted to do it from a career perspective, but I also wanted to do it from a personal perspective. I'd been living as a young adult in Sydney for a couple of years. I, I'd already been married for a couple of years, and I wanted to experience a different city, and I wanted to experience a different community than what we had here in Sydney. I had wonderful friends here in Sydney and a wonderful community, but I wanted to see what else was out there and where there was a bit more innovation happening, particularly in the Jewish world. Right. Um, which is why I wanted to, uh, my first preference of where I wanted to move to was New York and my second preference was London. Oh, fair enough. And you got your first preference? Yes, I did. Well done. <laughs> and what was, what was New York like? Oh, New York is such a great city. Oh, Yeah. It's such a great city. And, look, I got an incredible job there. I wanted to work in a consumer-focused company and I got a job working in a really high-end makeup company um, with the opportunity to turn their operations around. So that was pretty exciting from a work perspective. From a um, social perspective and a community perspective, uh, when we left New York, first of all, there was, you know, I got the interview over the phone and I know this sounds ridiculous and this ages me, but there was no Zoom at the time. It was literally a conference call, right. um, an interview over the phone. Uh, you know, I hadn't even seen what my boss looked like or what the environment I was going to. So, And um, she wanted me to start straight away. So we literally, we packed, my husband and I each packed two suitcases and we, we moved to New York. We knew one couple there, my cousin and her wow. husband, and we knew nobody else in New York. Uh, so um, from a social perspective, you know, at the beginning it was a bit scary but very exciting. Um, and I remember the first month being there feeling pretty lonely. Uh, but uh, we met some incredible people and made friends very quickly, I think, because we were consciously looking and had an attitude of being open to new people. Um, and we met some incredible people there. We spent a lot of time going to theatre and eating out and oh, enjoying New York. We were known as the do-stuffers. Were you actually? 
That was yeah, a nickname you had? That was a nickname we had from, from, our, from our American friends because we did stuff every weekend. Uh, we went to museums, we went to concerts, we went to, we were always doing stuff. Oh, fantastic. So if you're, if you're a do-stuffer, then New York really is the place to be. Absolutely. And because we didn't have a network of friends and families that we, we had to please, you know, we didn't have to go and visit, you know, right. a grandmother every Tuesday night or it had to have a family dinner on Friday night. We were open to creating our own adventures. So you didn't have to be a visit personer anymore, so you could become a do-stuffer. That's fantastic. And that, how long did that, that, that phase last? We were there for 13 months. And did you feel like at the end of it that was enough? Not that it was enough, but we had a real bean up on it that we wanted to travel Europe in summer. Okay. And we wanted to travel for six months. We wanted to travel in spring, summer. And so we were either going to stay, we were either going to be away for um, another year and a half or another six months. And we decided that it was, um, we didn't want it to be away for a year and a half more. So right. Two and a half years away is too long. Yeah, at the time, we thought that that was too long. Looking back, I know that it would have made absolutely no difference. But uh, And also the, the challenge of the work I was doing at the time. When I got there, um, the operations division was a huge mess. And so from an intellectual challenge perspective, it was really interesting to think about how I could move things and change things. Towards the end of the year, a lot of the change had been made and we were just doing, coming to the end of the cycle and it just... It wasn't as exciting from a right. perspective. Well, like I could coast from here, I guess. But you yeah, guys I'm not. Haven't. I'm not very good at coasting. Fair. Yeah, I, I get that vibe from you very strongly. <laughs> it's it's interesting actually because you mentioned um, just a little earlier that, that you're a very impatient person, and um, I, I just got into um, this this guy who um, he was like very out of shape, and then he then he trained hard. His name David Goggins. Very out of shape, trained hard, became a Navy SEAL, and after like. After being a Navy SEAL, like became an ultra marathon runner, did like ranger school, and and one of the things that he says is he describes himself as very patient, and it, it's interesting to me how like there are different roads to success that sort of harness different personality traits. Because for someone like him, if you want to be an ultra marathon runner, you've got to have patience. Whereas for like the sort of work that you do, it's it seems like every time I see you, you're like three projects further down, and you can't not be, and that's really good because that keeps things moving. So it's interesting to me, like, do you feel that you have a lot of, like, personality-specific things, like idiosyncrasies that end up being massive assets in your work? Uh, I like to see the future. I like to be thinking a couple of steps ahead. I think that, you know, that's, that's what my roles have always been, to be not be focusing on the here and now, but to be thinking about how we make change for the better. So I don't know what qualities I have, but I imagine they're the qualities that, that focus on those things. But I've always been driven to think about how we make things better. Cool. So, so that, like, that went with you to New York. You came back here and then it was more management consulting or something, something completely It was different? more management consulting. We decided that we wanted to start a family. So um, that was the focus at the time. And so I went back to BCG, which is a great place to work and continue to work on new interesting projects. Um, worked in the airline industry for quite a bit, worked in the financial services industry for quite a bit, new projects every three months, having to get up to speed on new content with new people every three months and figure out what the answers were mm -hmm. <laughs> to the big hairy questions they were asking. So intellectually that was very 
stimulating and at the same time um, we were just waiting to start a family. Fair. And uh, do, you, do you remember, like, the, the, the early shift into motherhood, like what that was like? Uh, I had twins. So. Wow. <laughs> so, um, Strong start. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I very much remember it. It was a huge shock and change from what I was used to because, uh, you know, most of my work is thinking work. Mm-hmm. And so to move from thinking work to moving to physical work, which is what, you know, having babies is about, especially when you have two, um, is really different. <laughs> um, but I prepared for myself for that uh, and, you know, I knew I was going to find that incredibly hard. I find physical work much harder than thinking work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so what I did to counter that was we started renovating our house six weeks after our twins were born and okay. that was my project. Uh, because you were doing that? That, that, gave me, that gave me the outlet to, right. to feel like I was progressing something other than, of course, growing my children. But I found it harder to, um, well, that was a much slower, that was a much slower burn. Right. <laughs> Raising kids is a patient game. Correct. Correct. It's yeah. a good pickup. Yes. Fair. And, and then at some point, I mean, like obviously now you're, you're not in the same sort of role that you were back then. Was there a sort of a peak for you, a sort of zenith of your corporate career? When you thought this is this is the top of the mountain, or is this as high as I feel like I need to go? No. No. So then, how did you how did you end up here at Shalom? Like, what was that a conscious decision? Well, I was about to turn forty, and I was doing a lot of thinking already about you know what did I want to do with my the next chapter of my life from a professional perspective, and I really missed working in a smaller organisation where. Um, I could affect change much quicker mm-hmm. than in a really large organisation. Commonwealth Bank had 55,000 employees wow. at the time. So to get anything done, you know, just, just takes a long time. Yeah. Probably much quicker than other large organisations. But when I moved it into the Commonwealth Bank, it was, again, a specific move to see would I enjoy working in a really large organisation. My conclusion was I prefer to work in medium-sized organisations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, what I really wanted to do for my next role was something, it was kind of the same, same criteria as I had before. I wanted, to, I wanted to work in something that I found intellectually stimulating. I wanted to um, still be around for my children. Um, and the intellectually stimulating, ideally I would want to do something I was passionate about as well. But what I was passionate about didn't really have job opportunities. What were you passionate about? I actually wrote a list for myself and I thought, oh, I'm never going to get a job in this. You know, I'm passionate about arts and culture and education and all of these kind of things um, and not-for-profit and doing good things for the world and and the customer, you know, figuring out what people want and trying to figure out how to get it to them. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't figure out how to make the leap from from banking anywhere else. But that was okay because I was really enjoying working at Commonwealth Bank and I kept getting interesting work and I had people that I worked with that, you know, were committed to helping me find interesting work. And then I got a phone call out of the blue from a guy that I used to share an office with at the Boston Consulting Group. Okay. Who was then in executive recruiting. And he called me up and said to me, I remember his question so clearly, would you ever leave Commonwealth Bank was his question to me. And I said to him, it's a really good place to work, only for something I'm passionate about. Good answer. 
And then he said to me, well, how about Shalom? And I went through that list in my head and I went tick, 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 <laughs> tick. And I knew that Shalom had, um, it's, it's, at the time, its current CEO had, um, and head of college had been there for 28 years, which told me that there was an opportunity to do strategic change and, mm. to, you know, to do some new stuff. And then I met with the board and the rest is history. The rest is history. And so when you came to Shalom, what was, what was already happening that you really liked? There were so many things that were already happening. I mean, Shalom has an incredible reputation, particularly for its signature programs, things like Limud Oz, the Festival of Jewish Ideas, um, the Sydney Jewish Writers Festival, the theatre productions um, that Shalom has done, and PJ Library. So those um, programs were all cornerstone programs and Shalom was also known as, a, as having amazing people. Uh, so there were lots of wonderful things that I found when I started at Shalom and so it was lovely coming into a place that wasn't broken but mm. was just a place that was looking for some direction. Oh, cool. I, I think Limud, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Limud's an international Correct. thing but in Australia in Sydney specifically it comes under the Shalom umbrella yeah so the rest of the world it's totally driven by volunteers in Australia it is um, very largely supported and directed by Shalom although part of the direction that we're going in is to hand more more of its strategy and direction back to volunteers so it's owned by by the community interesting how, how did it come to be a Shalom project here uh, my understanding is that my predecessor, um, Hilton, and the team had found it as an international program and thought that it would be a great program to bring to Sydney and sponsored it to do so and helped it to do so. Amazing. I mean, that, that's often what we do at Shalom. We look at, I mean, sh the Sydney Jewish community is not very large. It's 45,000 Jews, right? And so if, if we want to think about how we increase the vibrancy of the Jewish community, which is Shalom's mission in an inclusive way, it would be difficult to do that all by ourselves. So we're big advocates of finding things that have worked around the world mm -hmm. and adjusting them and bringing them to Australia and piloting and seeing if that will work. And so we've done that with lots of different programs. So we d we've Moish done that. Moishe House is that as well. Moishe yeah. House as well. And that's another program that, that already pre-existed when I arrived. Mm -hmm. um, and so all, all of our big programs have all come off, um, off either other Jewish communities or other Sydney communities and we've adapted it to the Jewish world. So Limud, um, Limud was an international program, so was Moshe House. Uh, PJ Library, we were the first um, country outside America to bring... Uh, is my understanding, to bring um, PJ Library outside America. What is so, the PJ Library? PJ standing for pyjamas. Um, so it's a pyjama library. And basically um, PJ Library sends free Jewish-themed books home to families that have kids from six months old to eight years old and they're age-appropriate books. That's amazing. It, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful program. You should see the kids' faces every time they get something in the mail. First of all, people don't get many things in the mail and kids don't get presents in the mail once a month normally. Yeah. So my daughter just gets so excited every time she gets a parcel um, that includes a book that she can read because it's age-appropriate or that she can get mummy to read to her. 
And PJ Library really tap, taps into um, a, a, a trend for young families and that trend is that they read to their children before they go to sleep. That's mm. what most families do when you've got young children. It's kind of that time but as they're transitioning from the day into the night time. And so PJ Library's um, tapping into that ritual of reading to your children and giving giving the parents the option to give to give them a book that has Jewish themes in it. Mm. It also really taps into Geno 8's discovery of um, the biggest influence on on a person's Jewish identity is the influence they get from home. And so if you have your parent reading you a book on Jewish values, that is much more powerful than me reading somebody else's child's a book on Jewish values. Interesting. How uh, this, uh, this is one of those projects that you can describe it in like one sentence and, and it straight away just manifests the obvious how good it is. Is, is it easy for people to sign up for this? They want Super it? easy. How, how do you sign up for PJ Library? pjlibrary.com.au. Okay. Where you can literally sign up. Fair. And is, is there like a monthly subscription fee? No, it's free. Get out of here. It's free. Amazing. Um, we do a pay it forward campaign. So we encourage people once they've been on the subscription for a year to consider donating so other families can get can get the books but uh, Harold Grinspoon who and um, the Grinspoon Foundation is the major philanthropist behind PJ Library program and it was essential to him that people don't have to pay for the books in Sydney JCA is the you know is our funder for PJ Library which mm-hmm. we're incredibly grateful for um, but the whole idea is that we want to have no barriers to entry to have a Jewish library in every family's home that's beautiful uh, PJ Library dot com.au or .org.au? Actually, you can get there from both places. Oh, very good. Um, okay, so that that's highly recommended. Did you have a book recently that you read to one of your kids that you really liked from the library? Oh, I have so many. Um, Bagels for Benny, I love. Um, it's, a, it's a book about, about um, and the Shabbat puppy. Bagels for Benny is about... Uh, a little boy who works at his grandfather's bagel shop on Sunday. On Sundays, it's actually funny. We were talking about working for your family business beforehand, yeah. so <laughs> same kind of thing. And um, he says to um, he says to his grandpa after working there for a while, um, Grandpa, can I can I take some bagels with me at the end of every session? Which his grandfather said sure, and he never knew what, what he was using the bagels for. Anyway, it's a whole story about what he used the bagels for. Well, don't spoil it. I won't spoil it, but um, it's a beautiful, beautiful book about um, sadaka and belief. It's a beautiful book. And then uh, Shabbat Puppy I love as well. It's, um, it's also a book about a child and his grandfather who go for a walk every Saturday morning. Uh, to find Shabbat Shalom, to, to find Sabbath peace. Cute. It's not a religious book, but, it, you know, that's their ritual. Every Saturday they go and find um, Shabbat peace and the little boy wants to bring his puppy along with him and his grandfather says, no, you can't because he will. the puppy will spoil the, sh- the Shalom. Mm. Um, and so and the, the story progresses. Anyway, I, I, you know, I don't want to spoil the, pu- the punchline saying that, the Shabbat puppy helps them to find Shabbat Shalom. Well, it's kind of in the title, yeah, I feel like. correct. So, that, um, that, one, that one I sort of see coming. But what Benny's doing with the bagels, I have no idea. That's right. And then, you know, there are other... There are, so some of the books are 
on Jewish values and some of them are on Jewish festivals. So another one that I love is Yaffa and Fatima. And Yaffa and Fatima, Fatima is trying to, um, uh, to show the similarities between Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs. And, you know, they talk about, they talk about two women, Yaffa and Fatima, and Yaffa, um, you know, Yaffa fasts on Yom Kippur and Fatima fasts on Eid and Yaffa helps the community and Fatima helps the community and mm-hmm. they, they, they draw these analogies. Um, they actually use a biblical story in there as well, which is beautiful. Um, so it's actually teaching a biblical story while... Which story? Um, the story um, about people swapping wheat in the middle of the night. Oh, yeah. Are you familiar with that, yeah, that yeah, biblical sure. story? So, you know, Yaffa's worried that Fatima doesn't have enough enough date isn't growing enough dates and Fatima's worried about the same thing and they swap in the middle of the night and they can't understand why why, why nothing's changed why not their stores haven't changed just like and that's from memory that's the story of two brothers um and that's where the Beit Hamidash was built I think so I, I can't remember what the origin is like maybe a midrash somewhere or somewhere in the Gomorrah I don't know but um, all right, and and the plays at theatre here at Shalom has been a an ongoing. Um, Very excited about our theatre production project. this year. So I I came last year. I, I was here for I I saw Man in the Attic, mm-hmm. and actually um, had had Maura Blumenthal on the show mm-hmm. to talk about it afterwards. That was so much fun, and we're doing another Maura Blumenthal piece this time around. Yeah, so we've worked with Maura for six years now. Mm. And um, this year, um, I really wanted to, I was really hoping that we would do a play that really dealt with the contemporary um, themes that were coming out of the Gen 17 study and what drove Jewish identity. I also was really hoping that we could do a lighter play than some of the plays that we've done in the past. Yeah, some of them were really heavy. Yeah, thought-provoking but heavy. Yeah. And so Moira has found us a fabulous play for this year, which I'm really excited about, called God of Isaac. Um, and it's a play about finding identity, and it is about finding Jewish identity, but it is going to be as interesting and fascinating for non-Jews as it is going to be for Jews. Um, and it's got a historical context. Basically, the plot is talking about um, a Jewish guy who's dated Jewish girls all his life, married a non-Jewish girl, um, and he's kept in contact with his first Jewish girlfriend who's done all the right things. She's, you know, moved to a good Jewish neighbourhood and married a good Jewish boy. And both of them are having um, identity questions mm-hmm. with the background of, of the incident that happened in Skokie in the 1970s. I don't know if you're the, familiar the with The neo-Nazi that. march? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were a bunch of neo-Nazis that wanted to march on Skokie and why that was specifically significant was Skokie had the highest percentage of Holocaust survivors in America, I believe. Yeah, something like that. Um, and these neo-Nazis wanted to express their freedom of speech mm-hmm. and so it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And while this was going on, uh, the, the Isaac, the main protagonist in the play, started thinking, well, do I even care? You know, I'm Jewish, but I'm not really that Jewish. Mm-hmm. Why do I care? And um, he meets a whole lot of characters along the way. It's a very, very funny play, like very funny. Um, everybody who who go there will be laughing for a, a large majority of the time. So very I'm cool. very excited about that. And, and I don't want to, I think I've spoken to you a bit about it. I've spoken to Moira a little bit about it. And like um, something else that I noticed about the play, and again, I don't, I don't want to spoil anything because this seems like the sort of thing that, is much better experience for the first time um, than described, but it 
the the production plays with really it plays really interestingly with like the theater space itself in yes. a lot of a lot of very novel ways. I'm I'm very excited for this one. Um, how how much like for 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 something like that? It's a big project. How much is it, it? Do you have to be directly moving things around, and how much is it like let the team do what the team does? Look, we've been working. We've been working um, with Moira Blumenthal and Michael Schur, who are our, are our co-producers for many, many years, and now Lindy Adler, who is also another co-producer. And so, although we have, um, you know, we spent time talking to Moira about ideally from a Shalom perspective, what kind of themes we wanted to see explored in the community, Moira, you know, found the play and Moira is directing the play. Um, we're involved in the marketing of the play. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Moira and Lindy and Michael are really running with it. Fair. Is it, is it um, like the place, was that something that Moira brought to you? Was that something you brought to Moira? Moira brought it to us. And you went, yeah, let's do this one. Yeah. It was a, as soon as I read the play, I went, this is it. <laughs> Fantastic. Lindy uh, thought the same thing. <laughs> and it opens, if I, if I remember, serves next month, the month after. Next, next month, month, yeah, the September. 5th of September. Wow, so soon. Just in a couple of weeks. Wow. Okay. And, and Tickets are selling really well and um, already some of the nights are sold out. Wow. Mm-hmm. Cock of All right, many blessings and a good show. Thank you. Um, I, I'm but like you're a deuced offer. So despite the fact that this massive theatre production is coming up and it's going to be amazing, you're ready like two projects down the line. Um, the other big one that's coming up in two months is uh, Sukkah by the Sea. Yeah, so this is something we've been working on for two years and this is, um, I'm really personally really excited about this. I saw two years ago, I saw a little documentary on Sukkah City which is a project that was run by Reboot in New York. Uh, basically what they, they did was they had an architectural design competition to design a sukkah uh, and they displayed the top 12 designs in Union Square and they had 200,000 people coming to, wow. the, to the exhibition. And the sukkahs there were just so creative and so out there and Sukkot is a a festival that a lot of people that are not orthodox don't really celebrate and don't even don't don't know what it's about it barely registers yeah exactly you know and also every after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur I think everybody's you know a bit done with the festivals but Sukkot is a beautiful beautiful festival after the introspection of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur where we're thinking about yourself Sukkot is asking us all to think about the wider world and the issues that are going on in the wider world things like environmentalism things like um open home and transience, things like uh, permanence and what drives permanence and, you know, things, refugees and all these very modern concepts. And I just thought, so, so, so that first of all, it's a really interesting festival that not many people know about and it's a fun festival as yeah, well. It's fun, to, fun. To, to make a sukkah with your children and make decorations and it's, it's fun to sit outside and wondering when the rain is going to come during your meal and it's fun to sleep outside. I've, I've done a couple of sleep outs in the sukkah in the last couple of years with my children. That's, it's a really fun, fun festival. Um, and so the idea of reimagining what a sukkah looks like in a public scale was just such a cool idea, especially in Sydney where we all live outdoors and we love being out, out, outdoors. So I was really captivated by the idea of bringing 
a Sukkah city-like idea into Sydney. And like I said to you before, I'm a big believer of looking at where things work elsewhere and copying and adjusting them rather than trying something new from the beginning. There's heaps of advantages in that. Most importantly, that when you're describing a new idea to somebody, um, you know, if it's been done somewhere else before, people can kind of get it in their imagination. Right. Um, it also means that you've got a higher likelihood of succeeding. Much higher. So, so I, I'm looking at like how this, cause just the list of projects here is so many great things um, that, are, that are going on here. And so many of them work because like you managed to play like this sort of Johnny Appleseed role here. Of, like here is some really good stuff that's working abroad. How do we move it here? How do we make it work here? Then Absolutely. We I mean, it? we've done that with the Sydney Jewish Writers Festival as well, you know. Um, uh, the story goes anyway. The story that's been handed down to me is that Hilton and Marilyn Immerman, so Hilton was my predecessor, um, used to go to the Sydney Writers' Festival all the time and they noticed how many Jews were at the Sydney Writers' Festival. Mm. They went, oh, maybe this is something that we should put a Jewish spin on. And so, again, that, was, that wasn't taking something from the Jewish world. It was taking something from the non-Jewish world and say, let's, let's think about how we make this interesting in the Jewish world. So, yeah, we're big believers in taking ideas that work and adjusting them to the Sydney context. Right. So with the with the Sukkah thing, you're starting with Sukkah City, which is this architectural contest they had in New York. Um, and how, how is it playing out here? So um, I started talking about the idea to, to people around the community and luckily very early on I spoke to somebody who said, you should speak to Alice Spiegelman about this. Alice Spiegelman is the chairperson of Sculptures by the Feet. See, I, I think already I'd started making that connection be, between wouldn't it be cool to do this as part of Sukkah's by, Sukkah, as part of Sculptures by the Sea or in some kind of alignment with Sculptures mm-hmm. by the Sea because Sculptures by the Sea is an exhibition that is an outdoor art exhibition and effectively what Sukkah City was was an outdoor art exhibition. Sure. Um, And we were very aware that what we're good at at Shalom is bringing um, and curating Jewish content and bringing Jewish flavours to interesting, innovative ideas. But what we're not expert on is putting on an outdoor art exhibition. (laughs) If only there was someone nearby who were already experts. Correct. (laughs) So the idea of of working together with an organisation that knew how to put on outdoor art exhibitions was a great idea. Yeah. Um, And so we started looking for those. And to me, the obvious was Sculptures by the Sea. Now, I personally love Sculptures by the Sea. It's one of my favourite times in Sydney. Yeah. Um, I, my children love it. Everyone um, loves it. Everybody loves Everyone. sculptures. Even if, even if they go and then like they say, oh, this year was a bit rubbish, we didn't like the exhibitions, even that, they'll still go. Absolutely. Everyone, I will have a great day of it. Exactly. So, um, and I always go with my girlfriends and I go with my children and I love seeing everybody's different reactions. Yeah. So um, I, I met with Alice Spiegelman and I proposed the idea to her and she loved it. Um, Alice uh, is the chairperson of Sculptures by the Sea and she said, leave it with me and let me talk to my team about it. And then we entered into negotiations about how we could make it work for a good year plus. <laughs> and Sculptures said to us a couple of things. First of all, we love the idea because it's so it, it's so modern in one way and mm. so ancient in another way. Sure. You know, all these modern themes but with an ancient expression with, you know, with art involved in it. This This sounds really interesting. Uh, they were also, but they were very keen to make sure that it wasn't a competition mm. uh, because, you know, the sculptures that go up and sculptures by the sea have to stand the weight of time and weather and 
people and um, they they didn't want to end up with sculptures that were not going to be safe and with people that didn't know how to, to build sculptures in, with, in the, sort of environment. with the appropriate environment, sure. exactly. So um, we came up with a compromise. At first we weren't going to do a competition, but what we were going to do was we were going to agree on who the artistic director was going to be and the artistic director would set the kind of artistic vision for the for the project and choose the um, choose the architects that were going to be involved, right. and so we went off. Fine, and th- that artistic director had to be somebody that had worked with sculptures by the sea beforehand. Fantastic. And so we are just so thrilled to be working with Billy Foyerman William, this is his official name, but Billy, as we we affectionately know him, he has exhibited in sculptures by the sea before, and he's got a very interesting Jewish journey as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is incredibly creative and we have just loved working with him. So his, his vision was to, um, to work with emerging Sydney-based architects that are all doing very different things architecturally and focusing on different things and offer six of them the opportunities to build the sukkah. I, I remember I had the, the good fortune of um, being at, was it the, the launch party? It's one of the, the event you had for... I, I, it's the pre-launch party. The pre-launch <laughs> party. And I got to see some of the... Um, the architect's previous work it's amazing it's really really innovative and clever and then um, earlier today you've shown me this is on the website so I should mention that um, the uh, some of the the sukkah designs are already up um, some hints of the some sukkah hints designs we haven't put the whole designs because we want you to go and have a look yes, right so. <laughs> but, but like sort of uh, outline sketches broad yeah. broad ideas um, and I, I really like that so the the idea is that you're getting these six architects in and you're saying to each of them make a sukkah the design can be as, as wild or as innovative, as creative as you want, but it still has to follow, like, the, the laws of the sukkah and, like, be – and the, the philosophy of the sukkah. That's Is that correct. right? Yeah. So we uh, – and one of the reasons Billy loved this project was he said, you know, all architects love constraints. That's how, that's how creativity comes right. out of constraints. And there are constraints, but they are very few. You know, a sukkah needs to have at least two and a half walls. Um, there's, you know, some height – restrictions that you have both minimum and maximum height restrictions and the roof of a sukkah has to um, be a temporal it has to be a temporal structure and the roof has to be made from something that was originally grown in the ground um, you have to be able to see the the stars sparkle when you're you're in it at night um, but you need to have a sufficient roof as well so there's a couple of requirements but hey you're actually allowed to use the side of an elephant for your sukkah that's so funny you mentioned that yeah because I, I was I, I actually have it written down to mention um, <laughs> elephant <laughs> written down here none right of the sukkahs are using an elephant no animals have been harmed <laughs> in this work <laughs> I, it's it's uh, They've got a, a learning program on now here um, at Adas, I think. The Adas Curl started up. My dad, my dad wrote me into it, where um, everyone's studying Masech um, de Sukkah together. Okay. Well, they have to come to Sukkah by the well, Sea together. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's, a, that's a, an essential outing. Um, so everyone's trying... They can, they can go with the halacha and say, say, oh, is this kosher? It's not, I'll tell you, it's all, being, it's all kosher. Um, but, um, did, you have a, did you have a guide who's your, like... Yeah, so Rabbi Alon Meltzer is our programming director, so he has loved taking on and, you know, the, the architects, you know, during the design phase have been ringing him up and go, well, can I do this? Can I do this? And he's like, well, there's not a tefach there. We need to introduce a tefach there. And we have to make sure that there's the right percentage of sun and stars. And 
so this is what this is what it's been like for me because I've been because um, I found out about this project and I got to come to this pre-launch party and then I've been I've been reading through the the laws for the first time that I'm it's the first time I'm doing this track date but reading through track date sukkah and all the time I'm every time they discuss something novel I'm like wow that would work really well in a sculpture I wonder if anyone's gonna like you can can you or can you not build a sukkah on a ship mm-hmm. can you or not can you or can you not build it on the back of an elephant mm-hmm. and like it's, it's can it be two stories can it be two stories if you have a sukkah on top of a sukkah are either of them kosher? Are both of mm-hmm. them kosher? Mm-hmm. It's it's so good. Um, so I think like even before the the actual exhibition has happened, I haven't actually been to the exhibition, but just coming to the pre-launch, hearing the architects talk about it a bit, seeing a little of their previous design, um, has already added so much flavor for me in in my own studies because it's it's it gives me all this this conceptual space to work with. Yeah, and look. The reason I was so excited about this project from the beginning is uh, one of one of the many reasons why I've chosen to come to work at Shalom and we kind of didn't get into the you know some of the other things that happened in my life beforehand that that really inspired me to work in not for profit. Um, but one of the things was the belief in the enduring Jewish peoplehood and how much Jewish peoplehood have sustained themselves but also given to the world in the Mm. last three and a half thousand years. And sukkah is one of those opportunities, and and I believe in order for us to want to be Jewish, first of all, I believe in in the 21st century, we as Jews all have a choice to be Jewish. In the past we didn't see we we didn't see any of our lives as choice. We didn't you know now everything in our life is a choice. Yeah. Right. We live in a very privileged time, and I don't care if your mother was you know, halakhically Jewish or not. People still have a choice to choose to live their life as a Jewish as a Jewish person. And you know, and to me, what I want to do at Shalom is to highlight that there are first of all that there's a lot of opportunity to be creative creative within our religion and within our tradition and second of all to highlight why we as a peoplehood have lasted for three and a half thousand years and how enduring the, the philosophical concepts are behind our rituals and how important they are to give people meaning in their lives and to hold them together and hold them in community and hold them in family and this you know what I saw in Sukkot City was just so imaginative and creative and um, I just thought it would be a great fit for Sydney. Yeah. Oh, it really. I'm very excited for it. It really seems like it's going to be a fantastic exhibition. That's in October. It opens. Twenty fourth of October to the tenth of November. So the whole time during Sculptures by the Sea, it's going to be in Marks Park, which is that flat bit of grass that's been in the media of late, with the accessibility path around it. Um, it's where you get to see the majority of the sukkahs. Uh, sorry, you get, you get to see all of our sukkahs. It's where you get to see the largest concentration of sculptures in it's the like sculptures that big by the park, it's it's that the, big park. the end if you're starting at Bondi Beach. It's in the middle between Bondi and Tamarama. Oh, that's right, yeah. So it's, it's a sort of plateau. You go up the steps. You go up the steps and there's that huge grass patch. About half of that grass patch will be the Sukkah village so of Sukkah by the Sea. So exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be, let me see if I got this, this right, it's going to be just after the actual festival of Sukkah? Yes, a couple of days afterwards. All right. Wow, so keeping the, keeping the festival vibe going. Absolutely. And, you know, there's opportunities to um, have guided tours or to do a self-guided tour. We're going to have podcasts 
on the different sukkahs, having all the different um, architects interviewed by an architectural podcast. We're also putting together a playlist of music that you might want to listen to oh, as you fantastic. go through the different sukkahs. Um, we're putting together a scavenger hunt. We're going to do a selfie competition. Uh, we're doing a whole lot of interesting things to draw people to come and check out the exhibition of Sukkah by the Sea. Beautiful. I mean, we're, we're very nearly out of time here, but you mentioned before something that you really like to do is be looking ahead. What's a couple of years down the track? Um, if you if you look at the work you're doing here in Shalom and the, the Jewish community in Sydney all together, like where where's something, what's something that you see coming up and what's something that you'd like to, to see? Look, my my vision is to think about how you get people on the ring of the community engaged in Jewish community. And I'm, I'm particularly passionate about getting people between the ages of 20 to 40 engaged in their Jewish identity in a way that is meaningful for them and, so, and that taps into the habits and the things that they care about at the moment rather than asking them to do something that is totally out of their norm right. and their normal life. So all the ideas that we're developing are all around, well, you know, when we think about who who we want to engage with, which are people who are young and people who are maybe a little bit disconnected with Jewish community, all of our ideas are around um, those habits. Beautiful. All right. Well, may you be greatly blessed in your good work. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for coming on the show tomorrow. Okay.